Proverbs 22, verses 17 to 21. That is our Old Testament reading, Proverbs 22, beginning at verse 17. And then we will turn together to Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 8. The Holy Spirit says to his people, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant if you keep them within you that they may be ready on your lips so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may correctly answer him who sent you? And now we turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted Jesus and they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, All the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Amen. So we have here on the page before us, Not only Luke's narrative of yet another day in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have something potentially even more valuable to us than that. Now, of course, what we have here is a faithful historical narrative, and it is in itself true. But whenever we read the Gospels of the New Testament, just as whenever we read the Old we do well to bear in mind the Apostle Paul's perspective on Bible reading. A perspective he shared with the Corinthians, for instance, in the 10th chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians. He says that in many of the Bible's historical passages, these things happened as examples for us. They're examples. And the way Jesus handled his adversaries that morning in the temple as he went about teaching and preaching the gospel, the way he handled his opponents is instructive. There is something for us here that goes beyond the mere acquiring of historical information. We have here an example of how the Lord Jesus Christ handled 
his opposition. <laughs> how, he can't, how he handled conflict. And let me suggest to you, beloved, that this is something we do well to pay careful attention to. We really ought to take this apart and understand how the godly should handle spiritual conflict. Because it's all around us, isn't it? And Christians, by and large, don't do it very well. We don't handle spiritual conflict very well. At least not in my experience. One way that Christians, whose new nature renders us men and women of peace, as we sang in the 120th Psalm, I'm a man of peace. One way many of us handle conflict is to determine that we are just not going to handle it at all. We're not going to deal with it, which is a strategy of avoidance. Avoidance. Seeing the adversary approaching, whoever he or she may be, seeing him coming, these people just take cover until he passes by. Or if they can't duck out before he actually makes eye contact and approaches them and engages them, then throughout the ensuing conversation, these Christians will feel intimidated and just passively nod their head and accept his terms and presuppositions and accept his completely unbiblical worldview. Why do we do that? Because he's assertive and I'm not. I, the Christian, I'm not. That's the natural tendency. Some of us, by the power and grace of God, have to overcome if we're going to overcome anything at all. It's simple timidity. Timidity. And Paul tells Timothy, don't give in to it. Stand up. Speak out. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and sound judgment. You and I are only going to be in a position to help others when we speak up and don't let godless, unbiblical worldviews pass as if they were legitimate, because they're not. <coughs> others, who are made of sterner stuff maybe, don't shy away from conflict, but actually seem to welcome the debate. You perhaps have seen and known Christians like this too. They welcome the debate. They relish the heat of discussing spiritual things with the adversary, with the unbeliever, whether that discussion actually generates any light or not. And I have never understood professing Christians who enjoy taking a man down in debate who really delight in handing their opponent's head to him, forensically speaking. There is a proverb that says, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. What we're after is healing. What we're after is understanding. 
lively debate on spiritual things is fine and sometimes it's helpful. But the most persuasive Christian apologists I have ever known of are those who love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. Pray for those who mock their views, our views. Who pray for their opponents' conversion and the opening of their eyes and their minds. These are the gentle defenders of the faith, the humble ones, the ones most like our Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us again to this particular morning in the Jerusalem temple. It is about Tuesday of the week before the cross. But Luke, you notice, doesn't consider the day of the week important enough to specify. According to verse 1, it was just one of the days when he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. Just one of the days. And the Lord Jesus Christ did this a lot, didn't he? Of course he did. Here we have a man who would preach at the drop of a hat. Jesus was equally comfortable opening God's word to a crowd of people assembled in the temple for worship or preaching to an angry, stirred-up synagogue of people up in Galilee or preaching to one lone castaway woman sitting by a well in Samaria. Whatever the circumstances, Jesus would open up and talk. And whenever Jesus talked, whenever he opened his mouth, the power and majesty of the glorious kingdom of God would pour out to his hearers. And not only would it pour out to his hearers, but he would invite people to come into that kingdom. He spoke up because he's not like so many of us are. He's not timid. The Lord Jesus is not backward about proclaiming the kingdom of God. In fact, ever since he arrived in Jerusalem, Jesus has been teaching in the temple every day. We have that from the previous chapter, verse 47. Jesus has just driven the merchants and money changers out of the temple the day before, on Monday. Uh, you'll have to think back to July uh, when I preached on that last. So he has just cast out the money changers. And then on the heels of that, Luke says, he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. They were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging upon his words. Jesus, for his part, loved God, loved the word of God, loved the people of God. And so he brought them together just as often as he could. And he showed them the kingdom of God. And never a man spoke of it as he now, as chapter 20 opens, it's Tuesday morning probably, the day after Jesus ran out 
all those merchants from the temple. And that same threefold group who were mentioned up in verse 47, men trying to destroy him but not yet knowing how, they show up again. These chief priests and scribes and elders. And they represent an official delegation from the Sanhedrin. They're not just showing up on their own. They're not randomly there. They come as an official delegation from the Sanhedrin, the high court of Judaism, which, of course, held court there in the city of Jerusalem. (coughs) This Sanhedrin was a court of 70 men, who considered themselves to be the spiritual heirs of those 70 men chosen to assist Moses way back in Numbers 11, which we read not long ago, not many weeks ago. They considered themselves the successors of those men. The Sanhedrin also considered themselves to be the final court of appeal in all matters of Jewish orthodoxy. They tried criminal cases too upon occasion, but most of their work was deciding matters of Jewish orthodoxy. Which is ironic, given the vastly different theological views represented on the court itself. A court that was made up both of aristocratic Sadducees, and we know from other parts of the scripture who the Sadducees were and what they believed. They didn't believe in spiritual things. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection and so on. The court was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees who believe in all those things. Aristocratic Sadducees, blue-collar Pharisees, very different parties within Judaism. But together, they comprise the Sanhedrin, and together they decide matters of Jewish orthodoxy. And Jesus, of course, has been doing some pretty unorthodox things. No one ever spoke as this man. And then, in addition to the teaching, there were the healings. There were the casting out of demons. There was the forgiving of sinners. There was the riding into town just the other day to the accolades of hundreds of people And now just yesterday, that zealous outburst in the temple. Now the Sanhedrin hears about all these things, knows about all these things, but they can't charge him with doing anything wrong, actually. The reason they can't charge him with doing anything wrong is that he's not doing anything wrong. He's not doing anything wrong. But the plain fact is, he doesn't conform. Jesus doesn't conform. He's certainly not your average Jew. He's not even your average rabbi. This man, Jesus, doesn't fit the mold. He is doing things we've never seen before, saying things we've never heard before, which might be fine if he were doing and saying these things, in some dark corner somewhere. We wouldn't have to deal with it then. But the fact is, everyone knows him. 
everyone loves him. The poor people heard him gladly. And the high court, generally feared but certainly not loved by those they govern, the high court is miffed. They're just miffed. They're looking for some angle, some technicality by which they can discredit him in the eyes of those who've come so completely to love and trust him. And their latest angle, the one we read of here, is to run a check on his rabbinical credentials, his credentials to teach, his credentials to do the things that he's doing. Under whom have you studied, Rabbi? And they run this check, not privately, of course, not in some little one-on-one -on -one interview with him. That won't do. No, they show up while he's teaching. They show up with lots of people around while he's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God in the temple, in the presence of all these witnesses. They show up, they interrupt his lesson apparently, and they confront him. And they say, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Or who's the one who gave you this authority? We want to see your credentials. Now this matter of authority is an old question, isn't it? Addressing an old issue raised by lots of local bureaucrats in many little towns and villages along the roads that Jesus walked. It's all been asked before. Where does he get these things that he's teaching? By whose authority? By whose power is he casting out demons? And now we've got yesterday's incident in the temple. These people come to him, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and they say, essentially, we're the ones in charge around here. This is the temple complex. We're the ones in charge. Tell us by what authority you're doing these things, or who's the one who gave you these, this authority? Now, it's commonly considered poor form these days, I think, to answer a question with another question. And it is poor form if, for instance, a child answers back to his or her parents with a question. If they're being impertinent or a student answer a question with a question to his teacher, that's being impertinent. When a military commander says to his staff officers, report, what the commander wants is a report, not a discussion. But Jesus answers their question with a question, doesn't he? Not to be impertinent, certainly not. Not to obfuscate or muddy the waters. He answers their question with a question, friends, in order to make them think. He answers their question with a question to make them think. To work things through as a good teacher would. Listen, dear ones, because this is important. Jesus' counter-question does not sidestep their question. 
He's not avoiding them. He's not evading their question about his authority to do the things he does. He's giving them an honest answer. But it's an answer they have to work for. He's not giving them the flat answer for. He's asking them to just put two and two together. Because the answer to their question and the answer to his question is the same answer. It's the same answer. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? There's only one right answer to that question. Now, do you chief priests, scribes, and elders have the moral courage to face up to it? If you get this answer right about the source of the authority John the Baptist had to baptize, if you get that right, then you'll have the answer to your question about me. The answer is exactly the same, because John spoke and bore witness Now, these things that God's given us in the scriptures, as I said a moment ago, these things serve as examples to us. They're historically true. They're also examples to us. <laughs> Jesus refused to be intimidated. He refused to be intimidated by these minions of the religious establishment who came demanding things of him. He took charge of the situation, didn't he? And good teacher that he is, he compelled them, he forced them to think things through. And he calls and equips his people likewise to be bold in the face of the adversary. We are to be bold in the face of the adversary. Dear ones, I encourage you, I exhort you. When you see the opponent, the adversary, the unbeliever, the atheist, when you see him coming looking for you, don't hide. When he engages you with his godless arguments built upon baseless presuppositions and a faulty worldview, that is not the time for the Christian to be quietly passive. This is gospel opportunity knocking. So steady yourself, brace yourself, and prepare yourself to make inroads into his thinking. If the adversary is ever to be set right, if he's ever going to be transformed, it'll be by just the same means that you and I were transformed. It is by the renewing of the mind the renewing of the mind, but the wheels of that mind, the rusty wheels of that mind have to be set in motion. Now the apostle Peter, under social pressure, certainly knew something about timidity, didn't he? Under normal circumstances, Peter was able to keep his timidity down, and he was a pretty outgoing guy normally, but under social pressure, remember the courtyard of the high priest that night before the cross. Remember the servant girl 
who challenged Peter. You were one of them, weren't you? By the grace of God, Peter is able to overcome that timidity under social pressure. He's able to overcome it in his apostolic ministry. And his perspective on the matter is worth a reminder here. In his first letter, Peter's first letter, chapter 3, beginning at the 13th verse, he writes, For the benefit of every defender of the Christian faith in every age, including our own, he writes, And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And don't fear their intimidation. And don't be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Beloved, listen, bear this in mind. You and your spiritual adversary, whoever he or she may be, you are not fighting this battle on level ground. The fact is, in Christ Jesus, the logical and empirical advantage in the argument is all yours. It's all yours. In Christ, you are positioned for the battle on something firm and established, something firm and unchanging. You, the Christian, stand upon a rock. You're able to account for things. You're able to explain them. But your opponent, your unbelieving opponent, who is blustering and railing as he will against you and against God's law and against biblical righteousness, your opponent is going down. He's got to. Because he's trying to get his intellectual footing on shifting sand. And the firm ground he's looking for, if he bothers to look for it, simply isn't there for him. You're standing on a rock. He's the one in a hard place. So victory is yours just as surely as it was Christ's, whose religious adversaries in the temple that day, when challenged, when they were challenged, were stuck in this dilemma between their unbelief and their fear. Unbelief in the preaching and baptism of John the Baptist and their fear of the people. But the guarantee of victory in the debate with unbelievers is no excuse for lack of preparation for it. Christ offers us the victory. He also gives us the means to achieve it. So my first application of all of this is this. When you study the Bible, study it with purpose. Study the Bible with purpose. Immerse yourself 
in it. Arm and defend yourself with what you find here. Here. Become proficient at it. Because this Holy Bible isn't just a library for your mind. It is that. It isn't just a medicine cabinet for the soul. And it is that too. This is also an armory for the Christian apologist, the defender of the faith. It is. Study it. Become proficient. Put on the whole armor of God, armed and trained in the word of God. You're equipped, as were Paul and all the apostles, to fight the good fight of faith. And this obviously isn't a matter of hating our opponents. Far from it. It's not a matter of just wanting to score points against somebody in a debate. We reach out and we fight this good fight of faith because we love our enemies. We seek their good in Christ. We want to see them begin to develop a sound mind by compelling them compelling them to be reasonable to think things all the way through in this way we are offering our enemies a future and a hope in Christ as Paul told the Corinthians for though we walk in the flesh we do not war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now, what fortresses are those we destroy in the teaching of biblical doctrine and the preaching of the kingdom of God? What are those fortresses? He goes on to identify them. Paul says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The defense of the faith is a battle for the mind. And this we undertake by studying the Bible with purpose, by becoming proficient in its use. That's the first application. A second application is this, because by studying, one may come to know the Bible very well and still lack the expeditionary mindset that's needed to go out and use it. So add to the knowledge of your holy Bible a holy boldness in using it. A holy boldness. Don't let yourself be intimidated by those who seem to think they know better than the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand firm, beloved. From afar off, Daniel, in a vision, saw that the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. But that conveying of understanding to the many 
begins with displaying strength and taking action. In the temple that day, Jesus wasn't silenced by the men who wanted to see his credentials. He answered them with an answer that challenged them, an answer that made them think. And what a shame it is today to see Christian men and Christian churches give ground, even surrender to the enemy, when by the word and the spirit we still have such robust means to resist. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make us wise by your word and spirit, and then that you would also give us courage. Because we see the enemies of our soul around us, like the sons of Anak, like the giants, the Nephilim, the Rephaim of old. And we feel often like grasshoppers in their sight and ours. We pray that you would strengthen us for the fight, that you would give us clarity of thought, that you would give us clarity of speech, and that all of our endeavors in the defense of the Christian faith, the biblical faith, would be done in love for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his elect, and for our neighbor. Grant these things, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.